Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society. I work in our research department. Um, for this episode, I spoke with Awesome Padella and Mark Lazenby. Uh, we spoke about the unique needs in cancer health equity issues of the Muslim American community. Uh, Dr. Padella is an emergency medicine physician. He's also a health services researcher and bioethicist. He's an associate professor at the University of Chicago, where he's the director of the Program on Medicine and Religion and director of the Initiative on Islam and Medicine. In his ACS-funded work, he's working with Muslim American communities to increase mammography screening rates. Dr. Mark Lazenby, and it is Lazenby, I kept calling him Dr. Lazenby for some reason. Dr. Lazenby is an associate professor of nursing at Yale University. He's a philosopher of religion and an advanced practice cancer nurse. He's interested in helping patients with a cancer diagnosis deal with uh, questions of mortality. Through his ACS grant, he's developing a spiritually sensitive palliative care intervention to increase Muslim Americans' use of palliative care and improve their physical well-being while maintaining their spiritual well-being. So I was not surprised to find that Mark and Awesome were particularly thoughtful people, and we covered a lot of ground. But we didn't cover everything. The day after we spoke, uh, Dr. Lazenby emailed me, and I'm going to read an excerpt from his note, which he gave me permission to share. There's one other issue Awesome and I did not address, the xenophobic politics of our time. I've found that it's hindered recruiting some participants. Some are worried that I, a non-Muslim with as Anglo a name as one could get, am an agent of the state. In all seriousness, some have said that to me. At the same time, it's helped recruiting other participants, those, for instance, who want to help Muslims in this current environment. I've also heard stories from participants of providers expressing their anti-Muslim views more openly. Take off that scarf, said as an order rather than a question. You can't play that foreign language thing in here, said about a recording of the Quran a patient was playing in a single bed hospital room, and so on. Some potentially referring providers do not want to ask patients their religion, even though the patient has declared it upon admission to the hospital system, and it's on the electronic health record for all to see, and even though these providers refer other patients to other palliative care studies. And yet other providers see what I'm doing as an act of social justice and have helped tremendously. Cancer centers are no different from the rest of American society right now, a time during which tensions run high around racial, ethnic, and religious identity, particularly a Muslim identity. Uh, so two days after Dr. Lazenby wrote me that email, a gunman in New Zealand killed 50 people at two mosques in New Zealand. So that is awful. That's the world we live in. Uh, but we also live in a world with Awesome Padella and Mark Lazenby, two cancer researchers who are trying to help people live longer, better, meaningful lives. And I really enjoyed talking with them. So let's get to that conversation. I mean, I wanted to get you all together because, well, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Dr. Padella, you study the religious factors that prevent Muslim women from getting mammographies, or at least that's what your ACS-funded work is focused on. And and Dr. Lazenby, your, your ACS projects on the spiritual needs of Muslims diagnosed with cancer. So, I mean, like, I can see why this is important immediately, and I can see how it could be understudied. But I'm betting I probably don't grasp the full significance of the problem. So maybe starting with you, Mark, like, can you explain why this is an important issue, the spiritual needs of Muslims diagnosed with cancer? Why is it important for ACS to be funding it? 
I think when any people group um, becomes a minority people group, so um, as particularly around religion, they become what um, some anthropologists of religion call an ethno-religious minority. And um, typically when, they, when an ethno-religious minority comes from many different cultural and linguistic backgrounds, as Muslims in the United States do, you know, um, uh, they tend to coalesce around a primary identity of their religion. But the problem with that is then that the primary sort of focus of spiritual care in palliative care for cancer patients or other supportive care is really um, focused around the dominant religion. Even discussions like advanced directives or um, spiritual care is often presented from the prevailing um, culture. And this leaves this other sort of ethno-religious minority culture out. And as a consequence, um, what we have found in our research so far is that they don't, uh, Muslim patients don't feel supported by spiritual care departments or by palliative care teams in their um, spiritual and religious needs. So they go to look for support outside but often people outside of the cancer care community don't understand cancer. So they're caught in this, this bind of having no support within the cancer care community for their sort of psychosocial, spiritual needs and no support outside the cancer care community for the intersection of cancer needs and psychosocial, spiritual needs. Curious how... Well, I guess I'm curious how both of y'all started pursuing this line of research. Um, along those lines, Dr. Padella, how um, how did you come to focus on the religious factors that prevent Muslim women from, from getting mammographies? I think uh, the story starts before uh, mammography, but rather in the idea that my primary focus is on the religious dimension of healthcare delivery, both from the patient perspective and from the provider perspective. And being from the Muslim community, um, many years ago I thought, well, I should look at how Muslims are attended to by the So The term I use is accommodation, right? Do we have cultural accommodations for the values that Muslim patients bring into the healthcare encounter, uh, as well as Muslim providers? Uh, and my focus in the breast cancer project has been on those religious factors that have to do with healthcare seeking behaviors, right? In this case, breast cancer screening. But I also do work on the healthcare system side, like what Mark was saying, where um, you're thinking about the spiritual needs that Mark is, so you're, I'm thinking about just the general cultural and religious needs that most patients have, whether it be around gender modesty, whether it be around spiritual care uh, provision, like chaplaincy. So, so I got involved in this because I felt that the healthcare system in the United States is set up, and particularly in the way that we look at healthcare disparities, we look at them from a ethnic and racial perspective, and religion is uh, overlooked uh, or un- and understudied. Although, just like racial uh, identity and uh, ethnic identity creates social experiences. Uh, and creates values amongst those who share those identities. Uh, religion is the same thing. It creates social experiences that are health-related, uh, and it creates values that are health-related. 
So I felt that looking at this population, which is racially ethnically diverse, would allow us to better tease out how religion affects healthcare delivery and healthcare seeking behaviors, and at the same time, point out for us where there are gaps in attending to the religious dimensions of healthcare delivery. So, so specifically, I'm going to stop for a second. So the tagline would be, I study how religion affects healthcare disparities and want to create interventions that attend to those religious dimensions. Um, so that's how I got involved with it. And particularly, I would say, this became much more salient for my community uh, right after 9-11, right? So, so first, first, some early studies that were right after 9-11 around discrimination and abuse in the healthcare system, how that affected healthcare-seeking behaviors. And that's continued, right, for the last uh, 15 years or so, where there's been a clear notion of lack of accommodation, a perception of discrimination, uh, and therefore, a, a, a disparity in healthcare seeking, as well as accommodations with healthcare. Yeah, I think both of y'all have outlined a bunch of challenges in this space. So, what are the most important ones? What do y'all see as the most critical? I guess it's two pronged. The most critical unanswered questions from a research perspective, and the um, and I don't know if you want to tackle that first, or the question of which of these barriers are the most important to address, or can you even isolate them? So, so I, I don't want to speak before for Martha's, but um, if you permit me, Mark, let me just uh, yeah. suggest two things, and then you can jump in. One, I think that the biggest challenge is identifying really how disparities, right? We know that. Um, there, we know that Muslims aren't seen, meaning they're not counted within the racial ethnic sort of way that we look at healthcare disparities. So you have to find the Muslim population, then you have to tease out what's religious and what's not, right? And so the, that methodology, uh, I use community-based research, and then I look at religious dimensions, is, is one that's challenging to enact because it's not normally the way that people aggregate disparities, nor do they think about factors. A lot of times, they just said this is cultural, right? But they don't teach that what's actually textually, scripturally based, what's religious values, given the, the way that we think about it differently, right? Even the notion of spirituality is different in the Islamic theology than it would be in, in the way that we think about it, the dominant culture being Christian in the United States. Then the second issue is once you find a disparity, how do you then intervene upon it using religious factors? So all of that methodology in terms of tools and then intervention methodologies where you use religious tailoring still has to be formulated. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the biggest challenge is identifying and intervening. And we need to develop methodologies that are particular to this community. Uh, and I'll say one last thing. I think in, in my own work, where I tried to assess what the healthcare needs or the particular healthcare disparity needs of most patients were, we found three things in the healthcare encounter. One was related to gender issues, modesty issues. Two was related to spiritual accommodation as market studying. And the third thing was around, um, in the, at least in the healthcare system, around dietary accommodations. Right? These were accommodations that the Muslim community, even though they might be in majority numbers in some places, felt that healthcare system did not meet their needs around. I, I would agree with Afsam. I, I think the, the difficulty that I see, um, most of my work research is happening in, in New York City, and that's just... Um, because of the density of, of population there. But what I see there is that it, the Muslim community, just like any other community, is heterogeneous. 
but the the approach to how you deliver say um, spiritually sensitive palliative care um, can't be heterogeneous. It has to allow for the heterogeneity of um, belief and practice among Muslims. Um, how we get into that is what is so key. So, for example, one patient may may have um, real concerns about who she discloses her diagnosis to. If she meets up against a, a supportive care provider who thinks that she should disclose her diagnosis, say, to any anyone in her family, this could could present real spiritual crisis for the patient. But another patient who's Muslim may not feel that way. So how do we get into these these sorts of spiritual issues for these patients um, without um, typecasting, but also without judgment? And that's the intervention piece that uh, Oxfam was talking about. That's 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 very challenging. And Mark, I might jump in here. So uh, sorry, I was just this last weekend we had a conference at the University of Chicago that I was leading. Uh, focused on religious dimensions of healthcare delivery, particularly on chaplaincy models. And what I found with some of the chaplains, Muslim chaplains uh, from the healthcare environment, what they were sharing was that not only this idea, as Mark said, that okay, yes, there's heterogeneity, there, if they are present, which they're largely not, but when they are present, uh, since there's a minority of Muslim chaplains, there is also an issue about how they negotiate their, their identity, the chaplaincy identity with patients. They might say, well, they'll, you know, odd for them to come see a Muslim chaplain, Muslim chaplain comes in, well, what's my authority in connection to the community? They're worried about, well, we'll just go back to the mosque that I come from. Am I supposed to listen to the mosque imam or, or the chaplain? Am I supposed to, and the chaplain then feels, am I supposed to be directive or non-directive in the way they were counseling? So there was a story about someone who felt like God was persecuting her, and that's why she had cancer, right? Now, the, the chaplain was like, well, am I supposed to dissuade her of this notion, right, or not, and how do I do so, and how do I then negotiate my authority vis-a-vis the imam with telling her various other things. So I think this is, this is a challenge when we develop these new models, chaplaincy might work for certain populations. Some populations are still not quite sure how they deal with it. That's absolutely right, um, and, and actually we have uh, found this in, in some of our participants you know the belief that say God is is um, uh, punishing the person for say past deeds by giving them cancer, and this is not only um, um, unsettling for um, the patient; it's unsettling for providers. And so, how do you approach this and not offend the person and the potential for the person to draw meaning from the cancer experience? How do you turn it around from say, persecution to an opportunity for meaning-making. And um, that's, a, that's where we're focused right now. But it, it certainly is, a, is both a... I, I think the, the problem is we can't go at it theologically because um, we'll never win a theological argument, but more so because we're there as, as supportive care providers. And so how do we do that switch from persecution to opportunity, opportunity for for forgiving oneself, for um, finding meaning in the present, um, even through through um, 
spiritual belief and not right. and not um and not harm the patient spiritually and that's actually what we've seen that in if this patient went to uh, uh, a supportive care um off a clinician the supportive care clinician is more likely than not we've heard from our participants to dissuade the patient from their belief and that does more harm right but and i think this is a, a that's a very this is a very I, I like the fact that you're saying opportunity right sometimes people have to work through their own demons so to speak right they have to work through how they want to approach something um and and our system in the way that we're trying to be very patient centric and non-directional allows for that. At the same time, I think that you would find some people do want some resolution uh, or they do want some more guidance or they want to think about the theological plurality of this, right? Um, so there's an opportunity for growth, spiritual growth or individual growth, um, but there's a there's real, let's say, there's a real uh, lack, as, as Mark was saying, there's a lack of how we think about these things and, and where do our boundary points are. And this community allows us, actually, I think, uh, open the window into how we're training other patient populations, right? Um, gives us an opportunity to think more in a more nuanced way, develop more nuanced techniques of engaging the spiritual ideas people come in with, which may be different than what we're used to normally. Um, and where do we, as chaplains or even as clinicians, where do we draw our boundaries? Where do we find resources? Can we cultivate resources within the community, within individuals? Uh, to make this an experience that uh, their healthcare experience one that's beneficial to them. Uh, distress might not always be bad, right? Special distress, I mean, it's an old, if you reframe it as an opportunity, as, as Mark is saying. Yeah. I think, um, though, one of the real difficulties for us is how to... So it, it, we're, we are developing an intervention. Actually, we're piloting the developed intervention so how do we make this intervention um, accessible to the clinician who's not a Muslim or not um, um, uh, sort of embedded in, in Muslim theology and way of life? Uh, and that's the real um, challenge. And so we do have to, I think, come up with manualized interventions that that the the Muslim participant in a place where there are no Muslim clinicians can actually um, receive spiritually sensitive care um, and that the clinician has uh, something to go to. So the the other piece of that is then the dissemination that comes after um, the the efficacy trial. How do how do we right. get this out, you know? Right. So so uh Joseph you asked the question about why ACS should be interested in this, right? So so if you think about the uh, moving towards looking at this as a, a path, right, a patient encounters. So I'm working on the, or the project that was recently funded was on this idea, okay, how do we get individuals in the Muslim community to consider breast cancer screening as important to them, right? So they make that appointment to get a mammogram. Okay, so now they've gotten screened. Then the question is, well, what, how do we take care of them in a culturally sensitive way? where they feel that they can go back for repeat screening, right, uh, where they feel that the provider is attuned to the cultural sensitivities of be it modesty, be it these notions of whatever, you know, whatever else it might be. How do we make the community one where notions of fatalism or other things are, are, are sublimated, right, against this opportunity to 
find out about what's ailing you and take care of your body. But after that, after they get their screening mammograms, they get into the healthcare system, God forbid they have this diagnosis, right, of cancer, then Mark's work is then, okay, well, then how do we help them deal with this diagnosis and God forbid it becomes a terminal diagnosis? How do we then help them through that, support them through that entire process, right? Um, I work on interventions in the community setting to help them get there, but my, my interventions need to have a companion on the other side because we can't have people getting screened but then not following up. We can't have people who follow up and get a diagnosis and then have no spiritual or religious needs being met. So that's why ACS has to see this, this as a trajectory of a patient narrative and this pathway, all of this, if we're looking at religious factors and cultural dimensions and spiritual needs, throughout the entire process. If you want to eradicate cancer, then we need to support people through the entire process, the entire trajectory of their patient care experience. So that's why I think ACS and other funders in this space need to really think about the entire trajectory uh, as it relates at least to this population and other minorities as well. I think that one of the perils of modern academe is that um, I saw him and I are in, in different silos um, working hard away at our own projects. And, and um, it would be very helpful for funding communities to find ways um, for us to work on our various projects because we are at different, um, different points on the cancer care trajectory. But to work um, together on those different points um, in a way that produces outcomes. And, and, and I still haven't wrapped my mind around how we can do that and, and how funding agencies can do that in, a, in, a, in an environment in which um, narrowness is prized. Well, Dr. Lazenby, Dr. Dr. Lazenby, pardon me, uh, Dr. Lazenby, Dr. Sure, Padilla, thank you very much. It was a really nice way to start my morning talking with a philosopher, a nurse, a bioethicist, uh, an emergency room physician. Um, thanks for all you do to push the field forward and to help patients. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the, the share my thanks to the American Society stakeholders for allowing us to talk on this platform and for funding our work. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, um, where we talk with current and former American Cancer Society grantees about their work. Um, Research is one of the ways that the American Cancer Society is fighting cancer. We're the largest private not-for-profit funder of cancer research in the United States. But we do a lot more than research. We're really attacking cancer from every angle. Um, ACS is a nationwide, community-based voluntary health organization dedicated to eliminating cancer as a major health problem. You can learn a lot more about our research, about our call center, um, and our other programs and services at cancer.org. That's cancer.org. And uh, we'll catch you next time on Theory Lab. And um, everybody listen to me now. I need you to be good. I need you to be friendly and have the best of all days.